Good morning, everyone. If you want to grab a seat. How's that? Welcome. I'm so glad you're here. What a week, huh? Uh, Cold, snowy. Um, I I thought it was really frigid out there until I heard, I got a text from our son who lives in Calgary. Uh, He said it was 50 below one day with the wind chill factor. They said that if you're out more than five minutes, you'd get any any exposed skin would be frostbitten. So here we are, parents from afar going, wear your coat, please. I think you didn't need any encouragement for that this week, I'm I'm, I'm guessing. Uh, And for those of you who missed church last week because of the snow, uh, good news, Pastor Kevin gave a great message, and you can actually listen to that online. So you can go to our website, you can miss any of our messages on a Sunday that's all on our website, and so I'd encourage you to keep track with where we're at. Uh, thanks, too, for those who prayed for our eldership. We got a chance to be away last weekend at Keats Island over at Barnabas Family Ministries. Um, Angel's not a, technically an elder, but she came along because she's on the Barnabas board. But we had a phenomenal time of uh, sort of praying and scheming and eating and uh, setting goals for this year. As usual, it's really good. I'm really thankful for our leadership team. And so thank you, elders who sacrificed by going away like that. Good on ya. Love it, love it, love it. Um, got a uh, note from one of our schools. This is from Mountain View Elementary. They, we helped th- with some hampers at Christmas. We also gave a financial donation to the school. And uh, this is from the principal, Mrs. Jody Moss. Uh, and she's got under here, lucky principal. Um, She says, wow, words can't begin to do justice for the joy and hope you brought to the families at our school. We get the hugs and appreciation on our end, so we're passing them on to you. Hugs, or pardon me, huge thanks. I thought she was giving us hugs, but very disappointing. (laughs) Huge thanks, uh, staff at Mountain View. There we go, so very cool. Love love what we get to do at our schools. Uh, We're starting a new series this morning called Unhurried. And we're going to start by having us dive into a few scriptures. So if you have a Bible or if you don't have one, this would be a good day to have one. So if you want to raise your hand, our ushers will get you one. But we're going to first look at Mark chapter 5, verses 21 to 36. So Mark chapter 5, it's about three quarters of the way through your Bible. Mark 5, verse 21. When Jesus had again crossed over by boat to the other side of the lake, a large crowd gathered around him while he was by the lake. Then one of the synagogue leaders named Jairus came, and when he saw Jesus, he fell at his feet. He pleaded earnestly with him, my little daughter is dying. Please come and put your hands on her so that she will be healed and live. So Jesus went with him. A large crowd followed and pressed around him, And a woman was there who had been subject to bleeding for 12 years. She had suffered a great deal under the care of many doctors and had spent all she had, yet instead of getting better, she got worse. When she heard about Jesus, she came up behind him in the crowd and touched his cloak because she thought, if I just touch his clothes, I will be healed. Immediately, her bleeding stopped, and she felt in her body that she was freed from her suffering. At once, Jesus realized that power had gone out from him. He turned around to the crowd and asked, who touched my clothes? You see the people crowding against you, his disciples answered, and yet 
You can ask who touched me. Jesus kept looking around to see who had done it. Then the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came and fell at his feet and trembling with fear, told him the whole truth. And he said to her, daughter, your faith has healed you. Go in peace, be freed from your suffering. While Jesus was still speaking, some people came from the house of Jairus, the synagogue leader. Your daughter is dead, they said. Why bother the teacher anymore? Overhearing what they said, Jesus told him, don't be afraid, just believe. Can you imagine for a moment, Jesus secured by Jairus to go and and deal with this healer, great healer, deal with his, his dying daughter, and Jesus gets interrupted And because of that, because Jesus stopped, the daughter's now dead. Can you imagine? We know the story. We know that he goes to the house and heals her, but but what a story. Turn over to Luke chapter 10. We're going to look at uh, verse 30 to 37 there. Very familiar parable of Jesus. Some, Some say that this was not a parable. It was probably maybe a true accounting. He said this, and in reply, Jesus said, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he was attacked by robbers. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him and went away, leaving him half dead. A priest happened to be going down the same road, and when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. So to a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, he passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he traveled, came where the man was, and when he saw him, he took pity on him. He went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he put the man on his own donkey, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. The next day he took out two denarii and gave, him to the, gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said, and when I return, I will reimburse you for any extra expense you may have. Which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell in the hands of robbers? The expert in the law replied, the one who had mercy on him. And Jesus told him, Go and do likewise. I want you to take note there that the hero of the story wasn't the priest or the Levite, wasn't the religious professional. It was the one who slowed down long enough to not just notice a need, but actually to reach out and meet a need. Final passage we're going to look at is John chapter 11, verses 1 to 7. Another famous story. Now, a man named Lazarus was sick. We know he was Jesus' good friend. He was from Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. This Mary, whose brother Lazarus now lay sick, was the same one who poured perfume on the Lord and wiped his feet with her hair. So the sister sent word to Jesus, Lord, the one you love is sick. And when he heard this, Jesus said, this sickness will not end in death. No, it is for God's glory, so that God's Son may be glorified through it. Now, Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus, so when he heard that Lazarus was sick, he stayed where he was for two more days, and then he said to his disciples, let us go back to Jordan, or Judea. that story particularly, uh, uh, the, the, the greatest thing that stands out in that story in John 11 in my mind, is the resurrection of Lazarus. That was, that's what happens. We know that's the thing that stands out. But the other thing that stands out is simply that Jesus, actually, when he heard the news of his friend that was sick, he doesn't go. It says he waited two days and then went. And by the time he got there again, his friend was gone. You know, one of the first things you notice when, when you read the Gospels, the stories 
of Jesus' life and ministry is that Jesus was rarely, if ever, in a hurry. <laughs> he didn't rush. I mean, think about it. Can you imagine a stressed out Jesus? I mean, I can imagine a stressed out Derwin. I can imagine a stressed out most of you. But I have a tough time imagining, like imagine Jesus in a traffic jam laying on the horn because he's not getting where he, can you can you picture Jesus doing that? I, I don't think we can imagine him doing that in, in rush hour. Jesus, in story after story after story that we read of him, was, was present. He was, he was present to the moment that he was in. You know, he was, he was all there. He was attentive. He was responsive. He was, he was there. He was present to God. We read that he always had this ongoing connection to his heavenly father. He was present to, to other people. Think about this woman who, who just touched his cloak, and, and, and he knew she was there, and he, he took time to stop and actually attend to, to her needs. We see that time and time again, the way he addressed people. He was present to people, uh, present to the world around him, to beauty. I mean, he'd say things like, look at the birds of the air, <laughs> you know? They don't fret. You could even say he was present to himself. He's, he was present to his own body, to his own soul. In, in the Garden of Gethsemane, he, he's praying, oh, Father, my, my soul is deeply troubled and, and deeply distressed. He, he was aware of what was going on inside him. Jesus lived this non-hurried, present way of life. And the question is this morning is, is what does this mean for, for you and I? You know, one implication of seeking to live as a Jesus person, as a, a disciple or a, a student or a, a follower of Jesus, is that somehow we ought to match our life pace to his. We kind of link up with him, not just in, in sort of the I, things he taught, principles that he taught about. We actually look at how Jesus lives, that somehow our lives wouldn't be marked by rushing or hurry. Uh, you know, the Christian life throughout history has often been described as being a walk, walking with God. Um, I'll never forget uh, my, my first year in seminary, taking a class with J.I. Packer, the well-known English theologian, and I got to confess, if anybody could put me to sleep, it was J.I. Packer. He was, <laughs> amazing writer, knowing God, uh, but, but he, anyway, I, <laughs> The time where I loved it the most was when you could tell he was going off on a riff, and, he, and, and when we were studying the book of Colossians together, he, he pointed out Colossians 2.6, which says, therefore, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him. And I didn't remember a lot of what J.I. Packer said, but I remember somehow these words where he, he went on to say that the Christian life is not a sprint. It's not a race. It's not a marathon. In, in Scripture, time after time, we hear it being described as a walk. And what is walking? It's a slow pace. I, you know, I, I sometimes walk to the church from my home, and it's funny, I, I drive more often, and it takes me three to four minutes to get here in a car, and it takes me 25 minutes walking. And it's amazing how I have gotten to know the neighborhood because I'm going slow enough to see, to walk. To follow Jesus is to walk with God, matching our pace to Jesus's, and, and discovering really what is a countercultural rhythm of living that is a, marked by grace. Which means for most of us, 
we need to slow down. Because this hurried pace of life, this, this, this rushing that is characteristic of many of us, robs us of the capacity to be present to God, to other people, to, to our coworkers, to our family, to, to those are, uh, that we meet that, that happen to be in need, to the world around us, to beauty, and again, even to our own souls and our own bodies. Now, I want to tell you this morning about two Johns, not, not two books of the Bible named John. These are two Johns that I know. First John, sounds like I'm quoting, <laughs> is John Orberg, who's a, a very, uh, very well-respected pastor and author in Southern California, and uh, I've read a lot of his books and have appreciated his teaching One of our highlights of our first sabbatical eight years ago was we got to go to his church, and before the service, Angel and I went up to John and Nancy Ortberg, and it was just an amazing connection, and he was as kind in person as we imagined him to be by his writing. He's the guy who kind of lived what he taught, and he's told the story many times in a lot of his writing how he once was, before he was a pastor in Southern California, he was a pastor of a large mega church in in Chicago. He was on staff at Willow Creek Church. And he describes how he just got into this sort of culture of busyness and hurry and drivenness. And he talked about how how that that pace began to eat away at his soul. He, He found like it robbed him of life and joy. Began to hate what he was doing, even though he was doing God's work. And so he reached out to his mentor, which is another mentor of mine, Dallas Willard, and he called up Dallas and he he described what was going on in his life over the phone. And he said to Dallas, what should I do? And these are the words that Dallas said. He said, hurry is the great enemy of spiritual life in our day. You must ruthlessly eliminate hurry from your life. And Ortberg's like, that's great, like awesome. What else? And Willard said, there is nothing else. You must ruthlessly eliminate hurry from your life. Now, if you've been around Hillside for a while, you've heard me share that quote. I've shared it many times. But I remember when I first heard it, how deeply it resonated in my heart as a young, hurried pastor. Yeah. But on top of that, this premise that hurry is the great enemy of, of spiritual life in our day, I mean, more than money, more than materialism, more than, than, than secularism, more, more than questions about gender, gender, more than pornography, hurry. There, there was a time, I think, early in my Christian life where I thought that hurry was even a virtue, that being busy, like I remember hearing a professor talking about, you know, re- quoting from Scripture, redeem the time for the days are evil, which meant get on with it. We've got a mission. Get out there today, now, go, Right? And here Dallas Willard saying you must be ruthless to eliminate hurry from your life. Well, on to 2 John. He's a mentor I've adopted a little bit more recently. Again, one of my highlights this week was to actually meet John Mark Comer at a conference he was giving here in Vancouver and was able to to go up and and say, dude, I like you, man. And uh, we connected briefly. It was one of those great connections. He's a pastor of a very large church, largely to millennials down in, in Portland, and I, I feel like he's read all the same people. We've, we've <laughs> read all the same influences. He's also a Dallas Willard fan, and last year, 
he took the words from, from Dallas Willard, these words about hurry, and he wrote a book called Ruthlessly Eliminate Hurry, The Ruthless Elimination of Hurry. In fact, uh, I ran into Ben Woodman, who used to be on staff here at Hillside, and he said, Derwin, you should have written that book. You've been telling me this for many, many years. But as I've been reading John Mark Comer's book, it's been speaking to me afresh again about this issue, but it's been focusing in on this struggle that I think that most Christ followers in our day are struggling with. And I think more so than even when Dallas Willard first wrote these words 20 years ago, or, or gave these, spoke these words. This need to address the hurry in our lives is going to be critical if we're going to be emotionally healthy and, and spiritually alive in the chaos of our modern world. And so some of Mark, John, John Mark Comer's teachings, and especially his book, I would say are the inspiration for this, this new series. This is what he said. He says, read the Bible. He says, Satan doesn't show up as a demon with a pitchfork and gravelly smoker voice. He's far more intelligent than we give him credit for. Today, you're far more likely to run into the enemy in the form of an alert on your phone while you're reading your Bible. Uh-huh, been there. Or in a multi-day Netflix binge, been there too. Or a full-on addiction to Instagram or Facebook or a Saturday morning at the office or another soccer game on a Sunday or commitment after commitment after commitment in a life of speed. Corey Ten Boom, uh, Nazi, you know, camp uh, survivor, once said that if the devil can't make you sin, he'll make you busy. Ain't that true? Or, or famous uh, psychologist Carl Jung, he, he's the one who invented the Myers-Briggs personality profile, smart guy. He said, hurry is not of the devil. It is the devil. And it seems like there's truth in that. And, and think about it for a second. How do people normally respond to that standard question that we Canadians ask each other, how are you doing? How do we answer? Good, but busy. I've been trying to not say that, but it's hard because it often describes my life. It's an accurate description. Uh, I have a tough time just saying, fine. I want to add busy to the end of, end of that. Comer uh, quotes his favorite theologian, Ronald Roheiser, who has this comment about our day. He said, today a number of historical circumstances are blindly flowing together and accidentally conspiring to produce a climate within, within which it is difficult not just to think about God or to pray, but simply to have any interior depth whatsoever. We are distracting ourselves into spiritual oblivion, pathological busyness, distraction and restlessness are major blocks today within our spiritual lives. Ain't that true? Uh, so we wonder why younger adults and older adults are having a, a tough time staying connected to the Christian faith or being interested in the Christian faith. They're too busy to notice. As, as he said, in, in Ronald Roy's words, we're distracting ourselves into spiritual oblivion. And so if there ever was a need in our particular day, it would be for a slowed down spirituality. We, we all kind of know the, the world sped up, don't we? I mean, things have gotten faster, right? John Mark in his book gives kind of a brief historical overview of how we got here. He talks about how the clock was invented in the 6th century by monks 
Uh, Benedict, uh, this, this, this famous monk, came, came up with this idea of fixed hour prayer, seven times of regular prayer throughout the day. But to do that, they needed a prayer app, and so they came up with a clock <laughs> that would help guide them. But that was kind of constrained to monasteries, but when it comes to kind of a turning point when it comes to time, historians suggest that it happened much later in the 13th or 14th century when the first public town clock was built, erected in Cologne, Germany in 1380. And it marked a shift in our relationship to time. Before that, the, our, our experience of, of time was not measured by our clocks or by our wristwatches. It was measured by the seasons. It was much more natural. It was, it was organic. We, there were no debates in the culture about, uh, culture about daylight savings time. They didn't need it. They just woke up when it was light. They went to bed when it was dark, right? After the clock came on the scene, time became more artificial. It was the birth of what we would call the, 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 the nine to five, which is, it, it can be ruthless. It made us more efficient, but we also became just a little bit more like machines. Then in 1879, Thomas Edison did a thing. What did he invent? The light bulb. This radically changed our relationship to rest. Before, before Edison, get this, the average North American slept 10 to 11 hours a day. Can you imagine sleeping 10 to 11 hours? Can you imagine how more civil we would be to one another? You know, energy, joy, all that kind of stuff. You know what the average North American gets in sleep now, a night? Seven is actually the average, but it, I'm sure for many it's six, right? Seven hours of sleep a night. More change about a century ago with the invention of, of labor-saving devices. We used to have to walk everywhere, but then with the invention of the automobile, we, we drive, we get there faster, we fly. We used to have to write letters, you know? We now call it snail mail. I mean, some people still do this, but but you, you, you put it in, in the mailbox, and it was kind of a mystery as to when you'd get a reply, if ever, right? Weeks, maybe months could go by before you'd hear back from anything. If you were sending something internationally, it was like, forget about it. Now, now we can text or video call anyone we want, anywhere in the world, instantly. Instant connection. We're more efficient than we've ever been before. We've saved all this time, yet in spite of our dishwashers and laundry machines and microwaves, we all feel like we don't have enough time. It was funny, I took a sociology class in my first year of university, and uh, my professor loved quoting, this was 30 years ago, and my professor loved quoting all these social theorists, theorists who was predicting that by 2020, by, by today, uh, we would have, our, our biggest problem would not be more work, or too much work, our biggest problem would be too much leisure. This is a common theory back in the 90s, 80s, 90s. And, and, and then there's a Senate subcommittee that, that actually gathered, and they, they put their minds to this. They predicted that by today, 30 years later, that, that we would actually be having 22-hour work weeks, and we'd only work 27 weeks a year. How's that working out? Not quite, right? One study suggests that our leisure time has gone down 37% since 1970. Over that same time period, we've had what you might call the death of a community-wide Sabbath. Some of you are, are too young to remember this. 
But 7-Eleven started. They opened their doors in 1969. And it was a radical thing to have a, a convenience store that was it, like big, big emphasis on convenience. Seven days a week. For, what time was it open from until? Seven to 11. You guys are really smart. I mean... Somehow along the way, 7 to 11 became, you know, 7 to 7, all the way around the clock, 24 hours a day. A little question for you. If 7-Eleven is open seven days a week, you know, 24 hours a day, 365 days a year, why do they need locks on their doors? These are the questions that I stay up and think about late into the night. You know, why do they need locks if uh, they're open all the time? That's a diversion I, we didn't need, did we? But, because I lost my place. But we used to have this, this cultural and communal day off every week where everything was shut down. My, my hometown when I was young, there were no, no stores open on Sundays. There was only two places open. Hospitals and, and churches. Both places of healing and a place of worship. Now, all of this acceleration kind of hit a whole new level of speed in 2007. John Mark Comer suggests this will be the, the pivotal year that will be looked back on like we look back on the year that the printing press was invented. In 2007, Apple launched the iPhone, the, the smartphone. The same year, Facebook and Twitter took off. It was the beginning of cloud computing and app stores. Uh, 2007 is widely looked at as the beginning, the official start date of the digital revolution or the digital age. And it's hard to underestimate how much the smartphone has changed our lives. Um, Comer says this, he says, more than anything, the smartphone has changed what it means to be human. Studies are showing that how the, with the use of our smartphones that it's actually changing or rewiring how our brains are working and it's decreasing or eliminating our capacity for attention or focus and our ability to experience the presence of God in our lives. It has, and we, we kind of know this, guys, don't we already? It has huge implications for our relationships with those we love, with the people around us. And it also has huge implications for our relationship with God. Psychologists are saying that most, for most North Americans, their relationship with their phone falls under the category of compulsion. We, we have to stay connected. We can't ignore that beep that comes to tell us that we have another email or message or text. And if you don't think you're an addict, try to set aside your smartphone for 24 hours and just see how you feel during those, that, that, that day. It's a challenge to do. Most people I know are addicted to their devices in some way including myself. All this to say is something has gone deeply wrong with our culture. M mental health professionals are, are calling, are talking about this, how hurry sickness is now a thing. It's defined as a behavior pattern characterized by continual rushing and anxiousness. Most people in our culture are living with a low-level grade of anxiety that just rarely, if ever, goes away. Psychology Today says it's a kind of experience in which a, a person feels chronically short of time and so tends to perform every task faster and faster and gets flustered when encountering any kind of delay. Have you seen this in your life at all? I mean, how about when you're driving? 
you know, and I see it, I, I do most of the, the grocery shopping in our home, and, and so it's, I, I notice it when I'm at Costco, when I'm, I'm pulling my cart around the corner towards where the cashiers are, and, and, and I, I begin measuring how, much is, how short the lines are and how much is in the carts of those lines. Anyone guilty of that? Do you, for me, I, I always get in whatever line I'm in, and I apologize to the people ahead of me. I said, I always pick the wrong line, so we're going to... You know, it's going to run out of tape. There's going to be something happen just now. What are the signs of, of hurry sickness in our lives? Ruth Haley Barton wrote a great book called Strengthening the Soul of Your Leadership. And in it, she lays out symptoms or signs that you're maybe moving too fast in your life. I want to look at those right now. Uh, irritability. That's just the tendency that, that, you know, quick to lose your temper, especially to those that you're close to, right? Really connected to that is hypersensitivity. You get easily offended or you're, you're very sensitive and defensive uh, to those in your, in your life. Restlessness. When you do slow down, you find it difficult to do. You know, when you, you're in that place, stopping does not even feel like an option to you. Uh, compulsive overworking. You never feel done, and you, so you keep doing more. You bring work home, you do it on weekends, you, you never really stop. Numbness. Losing capacity to feel, especially when it comes to empathy, feeling for others. This is a biggie. Escapist behaviors. You get caught binging Netflix or playing video games a lot, or, or you're, you're stuck into some apps in your phone because you're moving too fast to actually have the energy to do that, which gives you life. Funny, we, we do these distracting behaviors and they don't actually help us. We get, get distracted by these other things, so you just veg. Disconnection from your identity and calling. This is huge. You forget who you are and what it is God has called you to do. And so you kind of settle, you get sucked into things that don't matter. Like that old board game that we've all probably played at some point, Trivial Pursuit. <laughs> Number eight, no time to attend to human needs. Having just no time for exercise or eating healthy or sleeping well, all those kind of things. Hoarding energy, this is an interesting one. It's this idea that you feel so stretched that you become very self-protective. You feel like you have no room for anything or anyone. And finally, slippage in spiritual practices. This, this time to be with God in, in Scripture and, and prayer, time to be alone, and then time to worship in community, to let Jesus affirm you and, and lead you in your life. As Angel said a couple of weeks ago, to let God be your good shepherd, to allow him to shepherd you and guide you and lead you, to be present to God, that gets squeezed out with hurry. Barton goes on to say that even if we have a few of these symptoms, it's likely that we're, we're pushing up against our human limitations. It's likely that we struggle in some way, shape, or form with our culture's epidemic hurry sickness. And it's time to consider a ruthless response. <laughs> as, as, as Dallas Willard would say, you must ruthlessly eliminate hurry from your life. How do we do this? We're going to unpack this over many weeks, but I'm going to suggest the solution is in slowed down spirituality. To slow down. To, 
to, to simplify our lives around what really matters. I'm not talking about adding things to your life, you know, but actually subtracting things from your life. And if we are adding what, what Ruth Haley Barton would call these sacred rhythms, we're being thoughtful and, and strategic about it. One of the ways we do this is what through has traditionally been called the spiritual disciplines or practices of Jesus. These are ancient sort of time-tested practices that orientate us to life. Years ago when I was a new Christian, um, a mentor, wise mentor, a friend of mine gave me a, a book called Celebration of Discipline by Richard Foster. Anybody read that? This is a very modern cover. The ancient cover is not nearly so trendy looking. And to me, Celebration of Discipline, worst possible title for a book ever, right? I mean, it just seemed to go very, right against the grains of everything I believed about. Who celebrates discipline? But I found as I read that book, I couldn't put it down, and I read it, and I've reread it many times since, and I began to realize that these spiritual disciplines, what have, what have some have, uh, have called a rule of life, another great term that doesn't sound very inviting, but they set the table for us for life. Some of you would remember we, we did this study on, on Ken Shigematsu's book, God in My Everything. We did this series, and we talked about the trellis and how spiritual disciplines are like a, a trellis uh, in a plant uh, that, that's used to, to cultivate, like a vine that, that would, if it, was just lay, if it was just left to itself, it would lay on the ground and it would not be very fruitful. But instead, it's cultivated and, and guided by, by this trellis. And, and so they become a framework that support us and point us towards the sun so that we can grow and be healthy. They're not meant to be this heavy burden to us or guilt-inducing, but rather they are they're gifts that help us live and thrive in a rushed and chaotic world. It's, it's fascinating to me that just how many of the spiritual disciplines have this built-in kind of slowness to them. And so here's what I'm proposing for a couple months, is that we would explore this, that we would dive into four or five practices or disciplines that can help us unhurry our lives. We'll seek to do this, I hope, in an unhurried way, slow enough that you can actually adopt these practices for yourselves. Uh, we're going to look at taking a weekly Sabbath, following Christ's footsteps to take one day in seven to, to rest, to stop, to, to worship. We'll look at silence and solitude, one of my favorites, one, one I feel like I need most. Jesus modeled this. He, he retreated from people, and then he returned with something to offer them. And then he'd re retreat again, often at the oddest times when he was busiest. He'd step out of the action, time away where Jesus pulled away from the demands to, to process and to receive from his Father. Another we'll look at is simple living, which uh, has been called often in our day minimalism. Um, most of us, especially in our rich culture, how do we live with less? How, how, how do we actually do that with our money, with our stuff, with our schedules, with the things we do with our time? How do we live more counterculturally when it comes to all of those things? We'll talk about the discipline of slowing. This was first introduced to me years ago by Dallas Willard. He talked about adopting kind of everyday rhythms in your life, like actually choosing the slowest grocery line on purpose, right? purposefully to slow yourself down. 
I'm, I'm really looking forward to unpacking that with you. That'll be fun, I think. We can experiment on each other. We can all help each other develop the, the spiritual gift of patience, right? We'll also look at fasting. Our elders are actually considering, again, reintroducing an initiative where we're going to encourage each of us to fast throughout our year. We're going to hopefully cover every day, and we're just going to we're, think we're going to just do this. We're going to actually have people sign up, and hopefully we have 30 people or 31 people a month that agree to fast for one day at that month. But we're going to talk about this whole discipline of fasting. By the way, fasting was something that Jesus assumed all of his followers would be practicing. He said in Matthew 5, when you fast. And so we want to learn, what is this discipline of fasting? How, how can that help us slow down? And it's good training for us, I think, not just in, in learning how to, to, to restrain ourselves and our appetites and our emotional drives, but also it creates a culture of prayer, which is a very good thing. Again, what we're talking about is adjusting our lifestyle with some practices that teach us to a slower pace so that we might really find a rhythm with which to live. But for us to experience that, I got to tell you, it's not going to happen by accident. The stream is going very fast this way. And for us as followers of Jesus, it's going to be countercultural for us. And we're going to have to be very intentional, very strategic about actually seeking to go the other way, as Kevin was talking about last week in his message. And so there's some extremely helpful practices that together I think we can learn about and discover that can train us in this way of Jesus, matching our pace to his in this kind of slowed down spirituality. Let me conclude this morning with this invitation of Jesus, this invitation of the easy yoke. Remember what he said in Matthew 11? Come to me, all you are weary and burdened and hurried, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. For I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. Isn't that inviting? It says to me that in Jesus and, and through Jesus, there is hope for those of us who feel hurry sick, for those of us who feel weary and burdened by life. And it's going to feel at first like a little bit like it's going against the grain and it's going to be, there's a learning curve to it. We might get worse before we get better. It's going to be like turning a big ship. You don't do it all at once. It's more of a journey, more of a pilgrimage than it is a destination. But we at least want to kind of get going on in the right direction. But together, I think we can pursue and discover and learn what does it mean to live this easy yoke of Jesus? I think it's going to be good. Why don't we pray? We can invite the worship team to come up and, and uh, let's just pause for a moment. Lord, I, I've been sensing in, in the run-up to this series that uh, you want to retrain us as a people. Uh, Lord, to find a new rhythm for life that would be um, healthy and right and good. I, I want to thank you. There, there are those in our midst who are older and wiser who are already living this rhythm. They've discovered this. 
and they've been slow to adopt just every piece of technology that's come their way. And, and, and God, you, you reward them for that. They're models to us. I pray, Lord, we'd learn from those who are already in our midst living unhurried lives. Bless them, I pray. And for those of us where, where life is too fast, where we're too distracted, where we're not living a Jesus pace of life, I, I pray you'd, you'd, you'd train us, Lord. Teach us. Whatever the right disciplines are for each person here, Lord, this morning, I pray you'd make that clear and that, that we might be those who are willing to step out and go against our culture and learn to experience these rhythms, these wonderful rhythms of grace. Bless us, Lord, as we step out in this way, as we walk with you. I ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. I want to give you this benediction. In repentance, this is words from Isaiah. In repentance and rest is your salvation. In quietness and trust is your strength. Amen.